Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and I'm not going to lie to you, it feels a little bit weird to be sitting where I'm sitting right now because obviously you can't see, but I am sitting in my sunroom in Maryland, looking out at the river in my backyard, recording with various audio issues that I'm stressed about, but overall it should be fine. Um, Things are unpredictable here. I had to switch out my chair a couple of times because I don't know why I didn't realize this before, like back in May when I was here last, but when you shift from one side to the other in this, not the chair I'm sitting in now, but the one I was sitting in, it causes this like horrible creaking sound that I thought you couldn't hear and then listening back to old episodes you fully can hear it so thank you guys for being kind and not pointing it out but I am mortified so I switched out my chair we're good I'm a perfectionist as you know but yeah things are weird because I'm sitting in this spot that I used to record in I guess back in like May when I was here last when you know things with the virus were kind of first happening and everyone was scared so like March through I guess, how many months was I here? Like three months? I don't remember. But I was here for quite some time recording episodes in this room. And so much has changed since then. Like since I was sitting here last recording with you guys, so much has changed in my podcast, in my content, in just my life, where I'm living, like so, so, so many things. And so it's interesting to be sitting here again. I feel like everything is rushing back. All the feelings that I experienced earlier this year are right back here. So that makes for good content. As we know, you know, struggle breeds change and change breeds content for my Instagram and YouTube and podcast and Patreon and everything that I do. I do a lot of things, um, (laughs) as you know. But yeah, so I think there's gonna be some really great episodes recorded in this space once again, now that we're back in Maryland again. And I'm mainly staying at home 90% of the time I'm here. So that means I'm going to be able to have some really awesome podcast episodes for you guys today included. So today on Thick and Thin, we'll be talking about just some of my updates and musings and things I've been really thinking about recently. And then I'm also, of course, going to give you a little story from history. And honestly, it's not little at all. It is quite a story. It's huge. And it's the true story of the one-legged spy, Virginia Hall, who has been called America's greatest of World War II, greatest spy, due to her badass efforts to aid the French resistance. And it's fairly likely that you've never heard of her, but her story is one for the books. You will absolutely love it. It just kept getting crazier as I went on researching it. So I'm excited to share that in the latter half of today's episode. But anyway, I do want to share in the beginning of this episode before I get into like the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about. I am so excited about this, actually. It's it's really, really exciting. I am signing with a, well, I already did, sign sealed, delivered, happened, but Next week is when things are really going to be put into motion with this new podcast agency that I'm a part of. It's called Studio 71. They represent a lot of other um, podcasts and also YouTubers and some stuff. They're doing a lot of production work for people and helping with the behind the scenes stuff, the advertising slots and things and just making things a lot easier for people like me who is in way over their head because I (laughs) definitely when I started this podcast back in I guess 2018 was when I started it I think like end of 2018 like August or something Um, I really didn't see it going as far as it's gone in the sense of 
just how large our audience has gotten and just our community and how much people care about these stupid musings. I guess they're not stupid, but just like very niche, random, very uh, not so glamorous all the time musings that I have. And I'm just, I'm blown away by it, blown away. And I need help to make sure that I can keep it up how I'm going because it takes a lot of prep now, a lot more prep than it used to because I used to just kind of like word vomit, which I love doing that. I still do it, but I do like to have some structure in the sense of like, I want stories that I've researched to make sure they're true and make sure everything's, you know, factual. And I want to make sure that it's not just one of those podcasts where it's just a total word vomit with nothing concrete you can take from it. Um, which for me as a listener, I listen to so many podcasts. I feel like the ones that I most, you know, return to the ones that I love and I, that it becomes such a, a, like a, a habit to listen to every single week, like a huge facet of my daily, weekly routine are the ones where I feel like I walk away from them and I've gotten something good out of it, like gotten something that I wouldn't have gotten if I hadn't listened to it. Maybe just a new way of, a new product, a new way of thinking, a new book idea or book title to read or just, I don't know, something that I can like kind of grab onto and be like, this is what I got. And that's just me, I guess, or maybe it's not just me. (laughs) I hope it's not just me, but that is my listening style. And so I've always been like this with my content. I pay a lot of attention to my own habits as a viewer, as a listener, and I make content based on what I would want to see. I, you know, try to get out of my head as much as I can and see other people's point of view. But at the end of the day, I make content not only for you all, because I do love and appreciate you guys, but also for me too. It's a good release. It's a good thing for me to do and feel proud of of myself for doing, if that makes sense. So anyway, that is how my podcast has been kind of structured and has grown. And in order to keep that up, I need a little bit of help with the bells and whistles, background stuff that I never thought I needed help with because I think that I can do everything because I hate asking for help and I hate enlisting the help of others because it makes me feel needy. And then also I feel like they're not going to do it right because I am just very specific with my style of things. So I've, I've held off for a long time, but I've decided to, it honestly will be a good growth moment for me to let someone else help me because I rarely do that. So anyway, we've signed with Studio 71. I'm excited to work with them. They seem very promising. I've talked to a lot of different agencies and what I like about Studio 71 is it sounds like they're really not going to change thick and thin. So I'm really excited, honestly, to work with them. I think they're really going to help me be a better podcaster and put out better content for you guys uh, without changing kind of the integrity of my show and what this means to me um, and how it is. I don't want it to become too commercialized or any of that stuff like it's definitely going to be still my spoken diary still something that is imperfect and that is special and that you guys can come back to every week and feel like it's like a warm hug you know that's kind of what I hope thick and thin is so anyway we're going to start with them next week this is the last episode that I am fully doing myself and marketing myself Um, I'm excited to work with them because they notice things that I didn't notice like I did not realize guys that we've been in the fashion and beauty category this whole time 
how did that happen? Like, I don't know. I just guess I clicked it like when I first started out and I just like didn't know what to pick or something. So anyway, we belong in a whole different category, which is another thing. Apparently you can also choose like multiple categories, which I didn't know. So they let me on to that fact that I did not know. So luckily we're going to shift to a more appropriate category for us here on the podcast, probably something surrounding, I think there was one about like journaling and then like design or something, history. I don't really know exactly, but yeah, so that is what we're doing. Um, and I hope you guys can be happy for me in this. And I hope that uh, we can get into a good rhythm with them that, you know, it's, it feels right. It feels like things are normal, but it's taking a little bit off of my plate because it's been a lot. I'm not going to lie because I want to make as you know good of episodes as possible. Is that a good sentence? Good sentence. I want to make great episodes. How about that? And so they're going to help me get there. So Anywho, that is my update, eight minutes long, me rambling about, you know, why I've signed with this agency, please don't hate me sort of thing. I hope everyone's okay. Are we all doing okay? I hope so. Um, But I have some other things I want to share, like some other life update things, because a lot of you guys have DM me saying you'd like when I kind of update you on my life before I get into like the stuff that I've sourced to talk about. So a little bit more about yours truly. Well, I am home here in Maryland. I posted on Instagram a little like synopsis of like what's going on with that um but if you don't follow me or if you didn't see it I'm here so it's what day is it it is November 19th Thanksgiving is next Thursday um my plan initially when I first you know booked my travel back here was to stay until after Thanksgiving and then go back for I guess a little bit of December before Christmas and go back to LA I mean and I have decided to forego that not do it because COVID is crazy right now and I don't need to contribute to that by traveling more than I need to and so I'm staying home through Christmas. I'll be going back like I think December 27th or something. I'm I'm going back to LA and it's interesting because like don't get me wrong, I love being home. I love my family. I love having them cook for me. (laughs) I love just like being chill and home and looking horrible. I literally swear I look bad every day because I don't care about my appearance when I'm around my family of course or my friends honestly for that matter but like I just feel like I can be whoever I want to be here I can be well myself I guess for that matter and I can just chill which is so nice but then there is also the element of my hometown really does cause me some anxiety because this is where I had some really really hard years some hard high school experiences that really have still affected me to this day it's a very big reason as to why I'm in therapy and so I do like have to remember that when I'm here which is sad because I wish that I could just have a better opinion of my hometown and didn't carry those thoughts with me and those comparisons and those just like just all that stuff that baggage so hopefully you know, as years go on, it'll get easier every year I come back. But right now I'm not going to lie to you, like along with it being nice and family time and all that, it still haunts me a little bit. So, you know, being home for an extended period of time, like earlier this spring, it really did drive me a little bit crazy. And I don't want to say that in a way where I, I sound super stuck up because I am thankful I have a family to go home to. Like, don't get me wrong there. I'm thankful. I'm grateful. All the things, all the fulls, but I'm not going to lie to you, it does cause me like some feels and some like really anxious feels at that. Like I don't know what it's been like. I can't like label it in like a specific feeling, but it's one of those anxious feelings where you, it's kind of like an urgent 
feeling if I had to label it. I was trying to explain this um, to my mom and to my therapist. And, you know, it's one of those things where I just feel like I, oh, it's like a a prickling in the back of my neck sort of thing. Like there's like something, like a, something that I have to do or like an urgent, like anxious feeling. I don't know what else to say besides that, that, you know, there's something bad coming. That's, that's it. Like, I feel like something bad's about to happen like any second. And that my therapist has said is because of just how things were in high school and how I was always like that in high school and coming back here, even though my family has changed houses since then. And, you know, but it's still the same town. It's still the same, you know, chance that I'll see the same people that really made my life hell in high school. So yeah, it's definitely, it's hard, you know? Um, I just wanted to share that because I feel like there are people out there that feel the same thing when they're home and maybe even it's in a different form. Like they have family troubles and, they feel that anxious, weird, like fear inducing feeling when they're around their family. And I just want you to know you're not alone. Being home for the holidays is hard for a lot of people. You know, it's a great thing, maybe right at first. And then after you're here for a while, it starts to creep in that like, it it just, it's weird being kind of reminded of younger years of your life, no matter how good or bad they were, I think. So yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, and so I'm definitely gonna have a lot of content to share with you guys this month, a lot of, or I guess this and next month, because I'm here until the end of December. So about, um, I guess it's probably gonna be like five weeks now from now until I go back to LA. So I'm really gonna lose my tan, that's for sure. But yeah, being home has definitely made me think about a lot of things, a lot of happenings from earlier this year, from earlier years in my life, all of those things. And I was really thinking the other day, very randomly, about this tree that had fallen when I was home last back in like April or May. And I was actually going on like a little walk. I, I go on like mom walks by myself these days um, because, you know, I'll run every once in a while. But honestly, just like getting up and walking, if I don't have the energy to like do a full workout, just honestly makes me feel so great, clears my head. I can listen to podcasts, catch up on things. So I was going for a walk and I walked by this little area where this tree had fallen earlier this year. And I was thinking about that while I was walking and thinking back to that day when it happened. So it was a super windy day. This was like the beginning of quarantine. So everyone was still getting in the groove of their work from home situation and, you know, having the kids at home and like all the things that were different because the world kind of came to a standstill. Taking a quick little break in our episode to introduce a sponsor. Today's episode of Thick and Thin is sponsored by Skillshare. I actually did a Q&A on my Instagram story last week and I was asked a lot of questions about how I learn design, how I've learned uh, just the various things that I do on the internet, like making a podcast, making videos, things like that. And Skillshare is honestly always my answer because I learned so much from Skillshare. It's basically an online learning community that has thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people like you and I. You can explore new skills, you can deepen existing passions, and just get lost in creativity, which is always so fun and it's a great distraction. And so one class that I have my eye on that I'm gonna take pretty soon is called Illustrating Flowers and Arranging Bouquets in Photoshop which just sounds like a lot of things in one class that I'm interested in. And it's taught by Dylan Mirzwinski. So I'm always trying to polish up my Photoshop skills because you only learn so much from school. I've learned most of the skills that I have that I use in my portfolio and all of my client work 
from things like Skillshare, from taking classes online. So definitely check out Skillshare if you haven't already. This is your time. There's so many classes on there that are actually under 60 minutes with short lessons, so you can fit it into any schedule. And you know, when you're a member, you get unlimited access to thousands of classes in all different realms, You know, things you didn't even expect for yourself to be interested in. So it's a great way to refresh your skills, your creativity, and even go beyond your areas of life and focus. So here is how you can get started. You can start exploring your creativity at Skillshare.com. Go to Skillshare.com slash T-A-N-D-T, so thick and thin, but T-A-N-D-T. And the first 1,000 people to use my link will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium Membership. So that's Skillshare.com slash T-A-N-T, and you can receive free access to thousands of classes for a limited time. Be one of the first thousand to sign up at Skillshare.com slash T-A-N-D-T. And it was a particularly windy day back in the spring, and windy days in my neighborhood can be kind of catastrophic because, well, I guess catastrophic is like a huge loaded word, but it can just cause a lot of headaches because we have out of the ground, like overhead power lines. And so if a tree falls or like a branch gets tangled or like any small issue, you know, all of our power goes out. It's a small neighborhood, so we all are affected by it. And it's really stressful sometimes, especially when it's like a Wednesday and you're just like home and everyone's home and no one has anywhere to go. And you're just like sitting in your house with no power and no internet and no TV and you're miserable. Um, Unless you get a generator, which we don't have. I don't know why we should get one of those. Um, But anyway, it was one of those days where the power went out and it was out for a lot longer than it usually is because this was during COVID, like when things had first hit. And I guess the electric companies were overwhelmed. I don't really know or they didn't have a lot of staff working or something. It took like four hours for us to get our power back, which sounds super privileged of me to be complaining about, of course, because there are people without power in the world and, you know, so it definitely wasn't the you know, the worst, hugest problem you could have in the world. But it was a headache nonetheless. It was annoying to have your computer die and I just, like, couldn't work. I guess I could work on my phone, but, you know, I was, like, editing a video or something and it was just kind of, it was just annoying. And my family, you know, we just all were just complaining about it. And the whole neighborhood was on Facebook, you know, posting, like, does anyone know any updates on like when we're getting our power back you know like all that stuff it was also kind of like I guess chilly it was like April I think so it was kind of cold still here and you know we didn't have a generator it was just this whole thing for four hours anyway and then it was fine it was back on all was well but for those four hours my neighborhood was in distress and people like went out into the street and were like posting photos of the tree on the power line in Facebook group and being like does anyone know how to fix this and like it was just a whole thing and you know this tree just fell it just did it's nature trees fall you know even if people are blaming it on like the person's house who is nearby like oh they should have gotten this tree looked at like it's their fault like trying to point fingers all this stuff and you know the tree just fell it just did and trees fall all the time wind knocks things over in nature all the time and I was walking by you know thinking about this whole drama that had occurred back in the spring as I walked by this this area where the tree used to be And, you know, I kind of thought about it and then the the feeling passed and I was on to thinking about different things and listening to other podcasts. And then I came across this quote on Instagram, which kind of made me revisit this tree situation. And it was really, really profound. And I want to read this to you. So it says, does the sun ask itself, am I good? Am I worthwhile? 
Is there enough of me? No, it burns and it shines. Does the sun ask itself, what does the moon think of me? How does Mars feel about me today? No, it burns, it shines. Does the sun ask itself, am I as big as the other suns in other galaxies? No, it burns, it shines. And this was said by Andrea Dworkin, who was a feminist activist and writer who was active in the 70s and 80s. And I believe one of my friends, It's GPF, posted this on her Instagram, but I don't, I think that's where I saw it, I think. I wish I had that source right now, but I'm pretty certain I saw it on her page. And then my mind decided to revisit the tree falling scenario once more. And you might be asking yourself, you know, like why on earth does Katie care so much about this tree falling and why are we going back to this? But, you know, similarly to the sun and the galaxies, the tree that fell was a naturally occurring thing. You know, the wind that blew it was also a naturally occurring thing. And both of these things, these naturally occurring things, acted together to cause this tree to fall and ruin everyone's lives. (laughs) Not really, but you know, people are dramatic. I'm dramatic. But the tree fell because of these naturally occurring things. It was just simply the tree's time to go, okay? The wind had places to be, so it swept through our town and knocked this tree over. And sure, like the tree falling would cause some headaches in my neighbor's days, but you know what? It was just the tree's time to fall and it did it anyway. You know, elements of nature, the wind, the tree, they don't care at all about my neighbor's reactions, about human reactions of human thoughts, of human desires. They don't do any thinking at all, as we, as we most, most of us believe, I suppose. Uh, they, just, they just are. They just do. And, you know, it was a real event when it happened. Now, all these months later, I'm certain that, you know, everyone besides me has maybe forgotten about it. Maybe people, when they walk by, think about it too. But, you know, the wind got its way that day. It did its thing and the tree fell and that happened. And so many things in nature do without much thinking. They do things. They act upon instinct, upon patterns, about upon, you know, the kind of domino effect of other things in nature happening. And they just, they just do. They happen. You know, why do we as humans consider so many other factors before we act, before we do? You know, of course, we try to protect ourselves, I think, you know, from discomfort, from pain, from just uncomfortable situations. I guess that's the same as discomfort, you know, just from all the things that we don't want to deal with. But at what point does that fully prevent us from shining, like Andrew Dworkin says? You know, why do we think so much of others and, and consider the opinions and thoughts of others so much and, you know, how it will inconvenience someone else? And I have this problem all the time. I think asking for help is always one of those things that I have a, a, a problem with, like I said earlier, you know, because I think it'll inconvenience someone. Giving negative feedback is also really hard for me to do. You know, I thought about it often when I was at L'Oreal, still at my corporate job. You know, I would be kind of a hard no okay I don't want to say I would be a horrible boss but it would be definitely an adjustment for me to be a manager where I had to give negative feedback to people that worked for me I would have a hard time with that because 
and it's not really, I guess maybe it kind of goes into the, the realm of me caring what people think, but mostly I just don't want anyone to ever feel uncomfortable, to feel sad, to feel hurt, to feel less than like that. I don't want that for anyone because I know how it feels to feel those things. I know what it's like to feel those things. And so I don't want other people, I don't want to be the reason that anyone feels like that. And it's a good thing, but it also, it's a bad thing because it's not good for progress all the time to think that way. And for, you know, a brand, it's not always great to think that way. You need to deliver feedback and you need, you know, to have those hard conversations and things. And so, you know, I I just find myself a lot of times caring so much, looking with my head on a swivel so, so much at other people and other people's thoughts and their emotions and guarding their feelings. And I completely neglect my own in the process. You know, why do we care so much about other people? You know, because we're good people maybe, because we are afraid of regressing to times in our lives when we were certainly less than. And for me, when I was bullied, I definitely don't want to go back to feeling like that ever again. And so... I want people to accept me, obviously, you know, but I guess on the other end of it, like, why do we judge other people so much? Like, why do we care so much about people's lives that we don't even know some of the times? Like, why do we feel so much, or why are we so invested? Why do we feel so much ownership over other people that don't even know we exist? You know, maybe we should take some tips from nature. That's what I thought when I was walking by the tree, when I saw this post on Instagram, like maybe we should take some cues, some tips from nature and act as we would if no one was watching, you know, if no one would ever be upset with us, if no one would be disappointed in us, like any of those things, because sure, my neighbors were all riled up and we were all not too happy about losing our power for four hours, but none of us blamed the tree necessarily, you know, we just thought, ah, what bad luck, you know, or I don't know, none of us like thought so poorly about this tree, I guess, we just knew, oh, it's a part of nature. It just does as it does. It is what it is. You know, maybe we should just do, just be, and act upon our own instinct like nature does. So I was thinking a lot about that, and I just wanted to share with you guys that thought because I, I think it's something where a lot of us have our head on a swivel when we should just kind of act as nature does. So... That was my little spiel. I do want to get into our historical story. My uh, Someone actually recommended a good title for this sort of um, segment in my show. And I forget what, oh, her story. Her story, like history, like her story. I don't know if that'll catch on, but um, yeah, we're going to move into the her story of the week. Uh, we're going to talk today about Virginia Hall, who, like I said in the intro, she is the one-legged spy who has been called America's greatest spy of World War II. Although, like I said, it's fairly likely that many of you guys have never heard of her. And that is a shame because she, as I do, as I say every week, you know, this person that I researched deserves a bigger mark in history, deserves more recognition for who they were and what they accomplished. So in true thick and thin fashion, that is what we are doing today. We will be telling the life story of Virginia Hall, talking about her legacy and just how badass she was. She was incredible. And so, yeah, basically I sat cross-legged on my couch yesterday with a plate full of leftovers and I furiously took notes while watching this hour-long special that was held in 2019 at the International Spy Museum all about her life. So it was like an hour and 20 minutes or 
or something. And it was a kind of not a round table discussion, but it was like these two women sitting kind of describing her life in great detail based on their research and based on what they know. And it was Sonia Purnell, who's an author. She wrote a book on Virginia called A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. And then Jonna Mendez, who is also an author, but she's also the former CIA chief of disguise. So she, I mean, her title says it all. She like worked on disguises for spies for many, many years, which is so cool. I want to do a whole episode on her, honestly, because that's awesome. But yeah, so many of the facts I'm going to share today come from this discussion. And there's a few other Uh, blogs that I found that also have some details that I put into this episode. So all that will be in the show notes. If you guys want to watch this hour, hour long special, you definitely should. It was a very good use of my time that will be linked as well, but got so many details about this woman via all of these resources, which apparently haven't even been around for all that long. A lot of uh, new sources have popped up in the 21st century. Back when she was doing her thing, a lot of things were under wraps just because of the nature of, you know, the spy activities she was doing. So I only really saw sources dating back to like 2007 and the most crucial ones weren't, you know, most crucial information wasn't even found until like 2015 or so, which honestly goes to show how juicy and exciting her life was and so you guys are going to absolutely die when you hear all the things that she did anyway I have the tea in this episode so it's been more than 70 years since Virginia's wartime adventures in France and almost 40 years after her death but let's take things back in time to the early 1900s Virginia was born to a wealthy Baltimore family in 1906 Baltimore is not too far away from where I'm sitting right now I live in Maryland as you know and Baltimore is is uh, just probably like an hour away from me, honestly. So yeah, we're Maryland natives. I get her for that reason. Although she did grow up on a farm, uh, which I did not. She basically was raised um, on this farm to get married, essentially. That was kind of the goal for many women in this time period, as we know. And, you know, the only goal really besides giving birth, obviously, to a bunch of kids that can carry on the name, you know, the whole spiel. She grew up in a large white family farmhouse with a wraparound porch on 110 acres of land with her parents and her brother. Virginia's mother had actually previously been her father father's secretary scandalous and ended up marrying him I guess and had jumped some rungs on the social ladder uh, in doing so because her father Virginia's father um, was from a well-off family had some family money old money that sort of thing and so the mother was kind of obsessed with the family continuing its wealth and high place in society and really you know once you have kids the way to do that is to marry them off into good families obviously so a good marriage for Virginia was was what she set her sights on. She was obsessed with it. Uh, But the problem with this great plan was Virginia. Uh, She wanted to trade all of that money, status, all that for a healthy dose of adventure. She was a total tomboy, and there's this picture of her that I saw uh, of her wearing a button-down in pants, and back in the era of, you know, the, the various gowns and, you know, petticoats and all that stuff, you know, this definitely was not uh, the go-to style for women of the time and so yeah she was definitely different she called herself capricious and cantankerous according to NPR and she liked to hunt it's also been said that she went to school one time wearing a bracelet made of live snakes 
You can't make this shit up. She did that. (laughs) And so she wanted to be uh, ultimately an emancipated young woman with her own life. That was her goal. And of course, you know, because of her mother, she was constantly at odds with her over this and they were constantly fighting and it definitely just even further encouraged Virginia to pursue this adventurous life. She just wanted to get out. And her means of doing this and kind of her plan was to leave her town to get education, to continue her education. She actually said at her high school graduation, according to the New York Post, she said, the only way for a woman to get ahead in this world is to get an education. So that she did. Her classmates actually voted her most original in her high school. Um, She loved language, politics, and she dreamed of living and traveling abroad. By the end of her life, she actually spoke five or six languages, which is really impressive. And luckily, you know, her mother, of course, had her thoughts, but her father really supported this side of her and allowed her to study in many different universities in the U.S. and abroad after high school. And she soon, throughout this, fell in love with France. And in 1926, when she was just 20, she's actually photographed in a simple black coat in France. It's a simple black fur coat, likely with some pants underneath and subtle pearls and she looks powerful I discovered this photo of her and you know it wasn't so bizarre in France at this time to combine men's and women's clothing they were very experimental over there at this time and she really grew to like dressing well in blazers and fitted coats and she even carried perfume with her on her spy missions that she would later go on in later parts of her life like she carried perfume with her didn't have many other things but she would carry perfume which I love I love that So at this point in time when she was, you know, studying abroad and doing all that, her dream was to become an ambassador in France, a U.S. diplomat, uh, meaning a person who represents the U.S. abroad. And despite getting perfect scores on many of the tests that were required to get this position, she got pushed back by the State Department. She applied several times throughout her life and got denied every single time, likely for the reason uh, that, you know, typically things at this time were denied to women because she was a woman. That was kind of it. Uh, Of the roughly 1,500 diplomats at the time, only six of them were women, which is just not right, honestly. It's not too shocking given the time period, but it's just not right. And she kept getting denied really for that reason. Despite all of her qualifications, the languages she spoke, the places she's been, she ended up as a secretary for the U.S. consulate in Poland. And this bothered her, I'm assuming, just because her mother had been a secretary and ended up just a housewife her whole life and didn't really ever taste adventure. And she wanted to get her hands dirty. She wanted real adventure. And she just wasn't going to get it staying a secretary. But nonetheless, she knew she had to start somewhere, so she took the job. And her father had actually died at this point, but he left her a really nice hunting gun, which she treasured. And in 1933, while she was hunting birds in Turkey, something happened that would change Virginia's life forever. She was using this hunting gun that her father had left behind for her, and like I said, she treasured it. She was hunting and she tripped over a wired fence in the marshes that they were hunting in and she accidentally shot herself in the left foot with the gun. And at first, you know, of course it was painful, of course it was terrifying, lots of blood, all the things, but she was in the hospital for a bit and then everything was apparently fine. 
but then gangrene set in which is i had to research this it's a tissue death caused by the lack or a lack of blood supply and her left leg had to be amputated below the knee from the knee down Um, And this was the only way at the time for her to survive. She had all sorts of illnesses attached to this. It was a lot to go through, especially in a foreign country where you're still just kind of figuring out your life. You're a secretary when you don't want to be. I just can't imagine how she was feeling during this time. But believe it or not, this event, her losing her leg, was a huge factor that contributed to her biggest achievement in life, becoming a spy. Some have said that she might have not gotten the job or even gotten thought of for being a spy if not for her having only one leg. So we'll get there eventually. You might be confused at this point, but it was kind of, it was a huge, huge event that really shaped Virginia's life. And so many people assumed that after an accident like this, she would retreat back to the U.S. and live a quiet life in Baltimore as an old maid, never to be seen again. But that just wasn't Virginia. Somehow this event motivated her in a way uh, to keep at it and be even more determined to live her life full of adventure and all of those things. Um, I guess in a way she'd been given a second chance at life because she very well could have died, you know, because of this accident. So yeah, like I said, she had to wear a prosthetic. So it was a very chunky, uncomfortable wooden prosthetic. She actually couldn't flex or bend her ankle and it apparently caused her constant pain really at all times. Like even with modern technology, even today, prosthetics hurt after a while of standing, etc. So imagine the pain she felt then with the older model and having to be on her feet all the time and just a number of things. It's just really remarkable that she was able to do this. And soon after the accident and getting fitted with the prosthetic and everything, she went back to work. The U.S. consulate, uh, given everything, they still had her back. And honestly, good for her for going back to work right away. I feel like I would have hidden out for like a year and milked that like stay at home, like paid leave or something for like illness. I don't know. I don't know if they had that back then, but anyway, she went back to work, so kudos to her, um, and the U.S. consulate tasked Virginia with going to complete tasks, like various tasks, I don't know what exactly, in the Venice canals in Italy, and if, if you've ever been to Venice in Italy, you know, like, what the canals look like, how... Imagine walking like on those bridges without the use of one of your ankles. Like she did not have the use of her ankles. Like she couldn't bend on one side of her body. And she somehow had to get herself like over these bridges and into the various parts of town to do the various things that the U.S. consulate wanted her to do. So it was next to impossible for her. So she was a problem solver though and came up with a solution even as a new amputee not quite used to her new normal of having one leg and a prosthetic she did something crazy she bought herself a gondola and if you don't know what a gondola is it's basically one of those boats that you'll see uh cruising through the canals there's usually a guy on the front like with the striped shirt he's like with the big paddle kind of like oaring you through the canals at a really slow romantic pace that's at least nowadays of course gondolas have been around for a very long time and they were used to transport things used for various other reasons besides just a tourist trap like uh (laughs) I fell victim to. It was like $40 for like a 20 minute. Anyway, 
we're not getting into that. So she got herself a gondola and her friend Angelo taught her how to row it. I don't know how she met this guy, probably just through her work at the consulate. And she met this guy, Angelo. He helped her figure out how to maneuver it. And every once in a while, when she started falling one way or the other, he would catch her too. Sweet guy. Don't really know much about him. But um, yeah, she had a gondola. She got all of her stuff done. And she was just such a problem solver for this. And then during this, um, now that she was an amputee and she was just trying to continue to seek that adventure that she was looking for, um, she once again applied to be a diplomat via the U.S. State Department. And this time she was rejected for being an amputee. I don't know the exact reason why she was rejected the first time or like what they said to her, but it was assumed that it was because of her gender. And now it's because she's an amputee and she was once again super frustrated by this, but determined all the same. So just goes to show, I mean, they kept denying her, kept denying her, but she would go on and make her own name anyway. So this is around the time when World War II erupted and Nazi Germany invaded France. And at this time, Virginia was still just really determined to get her feet wet, get your hands dirty. And so she volunteered to drive an ambulance for the French. And this was in the year 1940. And she was, you know, under machine gun fire, quite literally dodging bullets, driving from the battleground to the hospital, driving um, fallen soldiers. And this was her first experience with war and fighting. And she was hooked. She loved the adrenaline. She loved getting her hands dirty like this, even though she wasn't actually fighting she felt a part of it and France was soon overrun forcing her to flee to Britain and because of the war this wasn't an easy jump you couldn't just like hop on a plane real quick and like get there super easily due to the war and all the complications there so she had to go on quite a journey to get there through Spain and this is when the game changed for Virginia. She had a chance encounter with a spy in a Spanish rail station on her way to Britain that once again, another event that would ultimately change her life. She was approached by an undercover British agent named George Bellows who noticed her, which is crazy. Like he just picked her out of a crowd. Um, he noticed her at this rail station. Her energy and her personality caught his attention. And so Bellows approached her and gave her the phone number of a friend who might be able to help her find employment in England. And of course, this is a cover story. It wasn't actually a friend. This quote friend was Nicholas Bodington, who worked for the newly created Special Operations Executive, the SOE. Uh, very James Bond, all of this. And so Virginia went to dinner with Nicholas in England. They hit it off and she was formally recruited to join the SOE soon after that. And for some background, so after six months of trying, the SOE hadn't been able to infiltrate a single agent into France, like couldn't get a single person successfully into France to do some digging, do some uh, snooping around to see what was going on there. Not one successfully got to France. And then Virginia shows up, a female amputee from America, kind of nondiscreet, who would think she's a spy. And she says to them, I'll do it. And she most certainly does. In 1941, Virginia sent a cable message to an old friend who worked at the New York Post. Everyone back in America knew that Europe was in the thick of war and Paris had just surrendered to the Nazis. Things were crazy over there. And so she asked her friend, you know, would the paper be interested in her dispatches from life in Vichy, France? Just like her day-to-day, -day, things that she's noticing about the, the time there um, in the publishing 
publisher, George Backer, answered right away. He was so into this idea. He said he would love to run her reports, but was she sure that she wanted to embark on such a dangerous assignment, he asked her. Again, a woman at this time, it's definitely unheard of for her to be you know, eager to get involved with war. But he had no idea that this would just be her cover story, like her cover um, as an agent, because Virginia was launching a deep-rooted spy operation in France. She was to report back any political developments, economic conditions, and people's willingness to rebel. But soon, you know, these were her initial tasks, and then soon she surpassed all of this, we'll get to that point, and began recruiting agents, supplying people with weapons, organizing parachute drops, offering safe houses for resistance members, and even organized jailbreaks. And we'll talk about all those things today. She is such a badass. So documented as a journalist and reporter for the New York Post, Virginia went to France without anyone thinking that she was up to anything more than just writing some articles for the people back in America. And this title gave her the ability to interview people and gather key information that would be useful to military planners back in Britain. She arrived with 1 million francs worth of counterfeit currency as well, which would come in handy when she was bribing her sources for information. And so the women in the spy museum panel that I watched, um, that was the one that I mentioned earlier, where I got a lot of the information for this episode from, said that she had roughly a 50-50 shot at survival the first few days that she was undercover. That's when most spies are found out and their plan is foiled and they're either executed or put in jail, all those things. And luckily, she survived. Uh, She'd arrived in France and Because uh, the SOE had no way to contact her directly, they kind of had to just wait, twiddle their thumbs, and keep reading the newspaper in hopes that she was going to post something or, I mean, have something published uh, from her time there because that was the only way that they were receiving contact from her at this time. Uh, So they were shocked when an article appeared in the New York Post not long after she'd gotten there with her byline attached, meaning that she had survived, she had made it. And so she communicated with them via the newspaper with coded messages in her articles, which I think is so cool. And so, yeah, when she went to France, though, uh, as far as the SOE was concerned, it was completely dark in the sense that there was no British spy network set up there yet. She was a true trailblazer. I don't think many people know this. Um, That's why it's important to note. So Virginia, from there, started recruiting all sorts of unusual people to join the SOE spy forces in France. Uh, a brothel owner, a gynecologist, and people who would never be suspected as being a spy but were super reliable and helpful for her to get get the tea, honestly. And all of these people surprisingly said yes to be on her side, despite the fact that they knew that if they were caught, they would get executed, most likely. They did it because Virginia had this energy to her that was motivating and convincing at the same time. She was put on many secret missions while in France, and she enlisted these people, um, these just kind of hidden in plain sight people to help her with these. Um, And one of these missions, for example, was helping British airmen who had been shot down or crashed over Europe escape and return to England. So they were told uh, to go to the American consulate and say that they were a friend of Olivier. And Olivier was actually Virginia, and she, with the help of this brothel owner named Garen and her other friends that she had enlisted, hid, fed, and helped dozens of airmen escape France to neutral Spain and then back to England. 
And for a time, she was totally killing it. No one knew that it was her. No one suspected her uh, because she was a woman, because she was an amputee, a lot of things. She was able to really hide in plain sight. But she also wore super inconspicuous clothing and constantly switched up her appearance with a series of disguises. But eventually, the French started to notice that things were happening underneath their nose and you know, people were disappearing. Information was getting back to places overseas and they assumed it was strictly a man doing all of it at first but then they figured out uh, that it was a woman with a limp and so they called her la dame qui voit um, the lady who limps I definitely butchered that but that's what it means and the Germans put the limping lady on their most wanted list Um, so in October of 1941 there was to be this meeting of SOE agents Uh, it wasn't just her at the time overseas in France or I guess abroad in general there's a lot of them getting information um, about the war and so I guess they were all kind of lonely because they were on posts in various places and they wanted to meet up and just kind of have the community element and meet and so she sent some danger brewing in this and declined to attend this meeting of 12 SOE agents and it was a good thing too because it ended up being a trap So it was a very good thing that she didn't go. Uh, The French police raided uh, where the meeting was happening, capturing a dozen male SOE agents. And this left Virginia as being one of the few left in France and the only one able to transmit information directly to London. And so the winter of 1941 to 42 was apparently miserable for Virginia. I mean, I can't imagine her prosthetic feeling too great uh, during this time, her stump of a leg when it's really cold and she's oftentimes pretty lonely out there, I bet. Um, But yeah, she was miserable apparently. She sent a letter to the SOE saying uh, that if they sent her a piece of soap, she would be both happy and much cleaner, which, oh my gosh, I can't believe. But anyway, so back to the SOE agents though that were captured by the French, those 12 guys. Virginia didn't just let them, you know, leave them to die. She didn't let them just be captured and that was the end of it. She eventually learned that the men were incarcerated at the Mozak prison and she planned a way to get them out. And here is how she did it. So she actually worked with another woman named Gabby to hatch her plan. And Gabby was the wife of one of the... um, one of the agents behind bars and so she would often visit the prison to bring food and other things to her husband which I honestly don't know how this was allowed like how on earth is that allowed I don't know but whatever it was and she would often bring him tins of sardines among other things and so using the sardine tins and other items that she brought in some like little discreet tools they were able to construct a key and get all the prisoners out. Um, I'm not really sure the logistics and like the details there, but eventually they got out using literally a tin of sardines and some other tools, and this was all Virginia's plan. So I love that. Uh, she got all those guys out, even though she didn't have to, but she did. And I actually love, there's some other encounters that she had with men that make me laugh because, you know, of course, a woman can never just do her job. There's always issues, back in the day especially. So another notable event, um, an SOE agent called George DeBudin. 
I think I'm saying that right, was sent to help Virginia at one point in France and she was not having it. There was something about this guy that she did not trust and she refused to introduce him to her contacts. She apparently thought of him as a total amateur and too lax in security. And when SOE headquarters decided that the guy should actually supervise Virginia and like really get in there on her missions, she told SOE to, quote, lay off, (laughs) which I love. Very bold. So badass of her. Yes. Yes, queen. Okay. So then also another occurrence of this, um, in August of 1942, SOE agent Richard Heslop met with her, met with Virginia, and described her later as a, quote, girl, but at this time she was 36 years old, which is really annoying, Um, a girl who lived in a gloomy apartment, but he actually fully, almost fully, relied on her to facilitate communications with other agents, despite calling her a girl, even though she's 36. That really annoys me. Um... But yeah, so eventually she, like I said, was getting kind of, people were catching on to her. The French were realizing like, oh, this woman with a limp, and it's kind of hard to disguise a limp, you know? So she uh, had to get out of France. They were slowly catching up to her and figured out her whereabouts, and she had to get out. So she traveled by foot. Let's remember, she has a prosthetic leg, and she can't like flex her ankle. She traveled by foot to Spain over mountains of heavy snow. Uh, And she had a guide with her showing her the way, but in order to not be caught by him, as there were warrants out for her arrest and rewards and all that for a limping woman with a fake leg, she had to pretend that she had two fully working legs. So she couldn't slow him down at all, or she was worried she'd be caught. So she had to carry on and you can't, uh, I can't even begin to imagine how painful that must have been. But she made it to Spain and she took a ship from Portugal to London. And then when she got to London to SOE headquarters, after I think a little while, she was like, okay, I'm ready to go back. Like I am determined to go back to France and finish helping the resistance and all that. And the SOE headquarters in Britain said no. She was already found out. Her identity was totally known and she was done. Like, thank you for your service, but you're done. And so that didn't sit well with her and she decided, okay, you won't get me there. So I'm going to turn back to the Americans. So she decided she would go to work for the Americans and intelligence instead. Surely they would send her back to France given her credentials and her experience. And sure enough, they did. Virginia went back to France disguised this time as a milkmaid and it was an elaborate disguise. She went through a lot to get herself looking like this supposed milkmaid she learned from a makeup artist how to draw wrinkles on her face so she made herself look older Um, and then she went to this dentist to grind down her beautiful american teeth so she looked like a french peasant Um, and she got a flock of about 40 goats and a staff like one of those things she'd hang on to to guide them and limping wouldn't look too crazy for an old french milkmaid with a staff you know so this was her epic cover she smuggled messages back to london where the american intelligence group was apparently located which i'm not really sure why but that's another thing and in milkmaid cover she was transmitting all of this intelligence back to them via radio Every few weeks, she would change her farmhouse location too, so she wouldn't get found out. 
And as a milkmaid, she also allied herself with local resistance fighting groups and supplied them with weapons and equipment that she had parachuted in from England. And she organized about 22 parachute drops where these men were able to get the supplies that they desperately needed. They were often starving, underclothed, and miserable, living in the mountains. And that was how she got them to work with her on things um, by getting them their supplies. She had no military rank, but she learned how to exert her character and her charisma in a way that demanded attention from these men, which is really, really inspiring. They really trusted Virginia. And during her time in France, she was never caught, which I think is so crazy. She fully evaded capture, although many agents at the time in similar situations, mostly men, majority men, I'd say maybe all men, either gave up or were caught. And the reason was, you know, she was quick on her feet, even though she only had one technically. And yeah, she just had this spirit about her and she was she was determined and just so many things about her just really inspire me she got the adventure that she so desperately wanted she got a lot of it and like I said there's so much we don't know and I just I would die to hear more stories from her time out there like I'm sure so many crazy things happen that we don't even know about Um, but you know to touch a little bit on her love life in true thick and thin fashion because I do love I love love while in France Virginia had met and fallen in love with a former chef turned intelligence agent named Paul who had actually worked for her and he was eight years younger and six inches shorter than she was and in 1957 they got married after living together on and off for years and years and years apparently she hid her love for Paul from her mother for about 12 years I mean she's been through the ringer done so many crazy things you know brushed death so many times and yet she was afraid of her mother knowing about Paul because her mother, you know, had wanted for so long. She wanted a really wealthy, well-off, you know, established man for Virginia. And Virginia didn't want her to taint this beautiful thing that she had with Paul. But eventually she gave in and got married to him officially. And that is all we know about her love life. Um, I know that they were together until the end. And they eventually retired to a farm in Maryland where she lived until her death um, on July 8th. 1982 but in the middle there between her you know marrying this guy and being back in the states and all the things she joined the CIA actually which is impressive in 1947 and she was one of the first women hired by the new agency at the time now it's of course very established but in 47 it was relatively new and this was a desk-bound job um, where she worked as an intelligence analyst And after just one year, she resigned, likely because of the lack of adventure. She wanted to get her hands dirty, as we know, and eventually was rehired again in 1950 for another desk job, which also didn't last too, too long. Um, But yeah, her legacy still lives on. uh, All the things she did in the field and all of the crazy, badass things she was up to. Um, So yeah, like I said, her and her husband retired, and that was really it until she died in 82. And... I wish we knew more, like I said, about her wartime experiences, but she refused to talk too much about them, write too much about them. So hopefully, maybe in future years, more will come out about the crazy, amazing things she was able to do and um, 
yeah, a lot of it remains a mystery, but her perseverance, despite being constantly rejected um, and disabled in some way because of her amputation, um, is so inspiring. She didn't want glory. She wanted respect. She wanted adventure, and she got it. And that is so inspiring. So I knew I wanted to talk about her today in this episode. Um, I know her story was kind of lengthy. I hope you guys stuck around for it all and liked it. Um, And yeah, that's it for this episode of Thick and Thin. I hope you guys enjoyed and I will talk to you guys all in next week's episode. Bye. Bye.